You are listening to the official podcast of the Mission Redlands. We are a growing community living out God's radical love. Good morning, Mission Church. Oh, it's truly good to see all of you this morning. Um, I freely admit that I wrestled late into the night with this message. Um, so I don't have any funny jokes to get the day started. <laughs> I guess that was one, but anyway. Um, I have confidence that the good king can guard what I've entrusted to him this morning. Um, and so let me pray for us, and then we'll dive into God's word, and uh, he'll teach us who we are as creations of his. Uh, so if you'll bow your heads with me this morning. Lord, we gather together as a church community and as individuals in unity under your banner. Your glory towers over the earth and the heavens. You are majestic and glorious. Lord, we pray that this morning as uh, we open your word, that you open our eyes and our hearts to the message that you have for each and every one of us. We know that your word is like a mighty hammer that smashes rocks, like a consuming fire, and that it stands firm in heaven forever. Help us to understand as we look into your word this morning. In your mighty name, amen. All right. Um, So as we get started today, we're continuing our discussion and our exploration of what it means, our identity. Jason started us a little while ago, uh, maybe three weeks ago, talking about what kind of person do we want to be this year. And then Taylor continued that last week, talking about our identity in Christ. And then Today, we're going to dive into our identity as creations of God, as people made in his image. And we'll try to explore what that means, and we'll understand uh, by the end, not only the initial creation, but also the new creation that he's created in each of us. And so to get going, we're going to have to get started in the beginning. We're going to go back, way back, to Genesis. And as we start in Genesis we see a pattern that emerges. First off, Genesis is not a science textbook. I just want to make that clear for everyone in case you were curious. Right? It's God explaining himself to us, his role in the universe and our role in the universe. He gave us a mind and a curiosity to understand how he did it, but he's explaining who he is in this book. Right? So it's not a science textbook. And as we begin in Genesis, uh, during the first chapter, we see this pattern emerge in this ancient Far Eastern poetry, right? We see, then God said, let there be. Then God said, let there be. Then God said, let there be. And we see this seven times as we begin in Genesis. But as creation, the glory and splendor of it mounts, and he builds and builds to the crown jewel of his creation, human beings, the pattern suddenly shifts, and it catches our attention if we see that pattern. We say, something's different about what God made when he made us. So let's look at that. We'll start there. I'll give you a second to turn to it if you have your Bible or your phone or your app. We're going to start our journey today in Genesis 1, uh, verses 26 and 27. So here we are. Then God said, and here's the difference. Here's where the pattern pops. Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. This is new. This is different. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on earth, and all the small animals that scurry along the ground. So, God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. 
So there's escalation as we go through creation. And God does something different with human beings. He makes us in his image. This is different from anything else that he made in creation. right? And so there's something different about us. As we continue on, we'll look at Genesis 2, 1 through 3. So the creation of the heavens and the earth and everything in them was completed. On the seventh day, God had finished his work of creation. So he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy because it was the day when he rested from all his work of creation. God created us to be partners with him. And so after he finished his creation, he rests to give us an example of how to do this. But he calls us, if we look back, to govern the earth, to fill the earth, to reign over the earth. And after he did this, he saw that what he made was very good. And then we continue on uh, into... Well, here, let me pause for a second. We, as Americans, we, um, the technical term is a low-power dynamic society. So when we hear words like reign, govern, uh, rule, we uh, kind of push that away. We don't really like that much. And I think that the reason is, is because the last king that we had, we didn't get along with very well. There was a little incident in the 17, uh, late 1700s, right? And we threw off the yoke of tyranny. And so what's the problem with kings to us as Americans? Let me, let me give you one more example. Does your boss ever say, hey, would you mind doing something? Hey, if you could, could you do something? They're de-emphasizing their authority over you. We're uncomfortable with that, right? They don't mean, would you mind doing it, or could you do something, or will you do something? They're telling you to do it in a gentle way because we don't want to say, I'm in charge. We don't like to pull rank, right? And so um, the kings that we've seen on earth, we haven't had a good example for a long time, but God is, is a good, true king, and he rules, and so he gives us an example of how to do this. And so we'll continue on here. Let's look at, um, we'll go to Genesis 2.9. The Lord God had made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground, trees that were beautiful and that produced delicious fruit. In the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So we see in the very beginning when God creates us, he creates us with a choice. We can choose life and God, or we can choose knowledge of good and evil. And there's a temptation there that resides deeply in each one of our hearts. And as we explore a little bit more, we'll see what that temptation is, and we'll explore that. We'll go down to Genesis 2, 15 through 17 now. The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. Notice that, tend and watch over it. Rule by tending and watching over it. So we start to see a little bit more of this develop. But the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat from the fruit of every tree in the garden. Pay attention to these instructions. You may freely eat from every tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge and good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. And so then we see this uh, example. Now, look, if you read Genesis starting in chapter 1, you go through chapter 3. 1 and 2, you're going to read it, and then all of a sudden you're going to go kind of snap back and say, wait, what happened here? There's these two creation narratives that happen back to back. And if you're reading it, it could be a little confusing. This first creation narrative is the cosmic creation narrative, right? This is saying, hey, we're, this book is written to people coming out of a very different worldview than us. And so their creation narrative, the way that everything came into being, they were confused about. They saw it as this, uh, a foggy reflection in a mirror. And so God sets the stage for his people and says, God, I am the one, the true God who made all of this. And then the second story is a more personal story that's directed to us. So he says, I made this. Let me tell you how I participated with you and made you in this creation. And so that's where um, 
two starts here. And so if we see here in 18, there's this exchange between God where he says, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper for him who is just right. So the Lord God formed from the ground all the wild animals and the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them, and the man chose a name for each one. He, the man, gave names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals. But there was still no helper just right for him. And so we talked um, during Christmas about Joseph taking responsibility for Jesus by naming him. And so we see as God takes us on as partners in creation, and he gives man, human beings, the privilege of participating with him in this and naming the creatures and taking responsibility for God's creation. He created us to be stewards of this world and his creation and to rule with him, which is a very high privilege. So the stage is set here. As we see, we, see, we meet the, the protagonist, God. We meet the supporting cast, us. And now we need to meet the antagonist. So we'll skip down to Genesis 3, starting uh, verses 1 through 6. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, I forgot to mention that uh, as God was making a helper, he made Eve. Um, and when she showed up, Adam said, oh yeah, this is the one. This is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. This is a good helper for me. This is good. So Adam was really excited about this. So Adam and the woman are here, and they're ruling over, and they've been given a job to do. They've been given a mission. Fill the earth, subdue it, and rule over it as stewards of God's creation. And so here these, the husband and wife are in the garden, and then now we meet the antagonist. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit of any of the trees in the garden? We already, in the very first lines this antagonist speaks, we see what he's all about. He is a liar. He is a deceiver. And he has come to, to steal and destroy. So did God say you can't eat from any of the trees? No, he didn't. Of course we may eat from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. Right answer. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. We see here there's a slight deviation. God said, don't eat from it. And Eve adds a command or adds something to this. We can't eat it or touch it or we will die. So the serpent replies, you won't die. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. We see here the devil playing two truths and a lie. He tricks us, right? Look at this. What are the two truths? God knows your eyes will be open as soon as you eat it. True. And you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. So knowing both good and evil, that's true. But you will not be like God. You are a created thing, not the creator. You will not be like God. So devil, the devil tricks us with two truths and a lie. So he's very crafty. He knows more from being old than being the devil. And he's been around a long time. So he tricks us here, right? Um, in Genesis 6, or 3, 6, the woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. And she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate it too. 
At that moment, their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. Um, throughout history, right, the devil's a liar. And so he's used God, he uses God's word against God's people. You have to know it and pay attention, right? So there's two sins here, two temptations that are equally present in all of us, right? This isn't about Eve being tricked and Adam doing something else, right? This is an example to us of the two temptations that we are balanced on the razor's edge of. So why did Eve want the fruit? Why did she want the wisdom? Because they had a mission to do, to fill the earth and subdue it. We didn't start in this, like, when we think of paradise, we think of us lounging about and not doing anything. But God put us on the earth to do things, to be active. And so the one temptation is, I want to have the wisdom for myself so I can make the plans and I can achieve my ends. Right? So that's the one temptation that we all face at all times. The other temptation, look, Adam was with Eve when all this happened. What was the temptation that Adam succumbed to? Inaction. I don't want to deal with this. I'm not going to say something when I should say something. And so as Christians, as new creations, these are the two temptations that we constantly have to guard against. And the only straight path is the one that God has marked out for us. The one temptation, I want my wisdom. I want to know the plan. I want to make the plan. I want to accomplish my own ends. And the other one is, God willing, I hope it works out. I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to deal with it. So these are the two temptations that we balance on a razor's edge. Okay? So um, here we go. Those are the, the two things. And this is the paradox of the Christian life. We wait on the Lord, but he counts on us to do the things, the good works that he set out before us, the things that are right in front of us. We have to take action and count on the Lord at the same time. And this is almost impossible. It is impossible to do on our own, right? It is impossible to do on our own. Okay, and so you guys probably know the rest of the story, right? We're banished from the garden. Our unity with God is taken away because we fell prey to the weapons of the enemy. What are the weapons of the enemy? They're lies. David alludes to this in Psalm 144. Uh, And this is verses, I think, five and six, uh, somewhere around there. Rescue me from the power of my enemies. Their mouths are full of lies. They swear to tell the truth, but they lie instead. Rescue me from my powerful enemies, from deep waters. They swear to tell the truth, but they lie instead. So we fell prey to the power of the weapons of the enemy, which are lies. They're deceit. Our job was to reign with God, relying on him, but we wanted the wisdom so that we could do it ourselves, and we wanted our own wisdom. Church, listen carefully to what I'm saying. Not what you think I'm about to say or what you think that I say, but listen to what I'm saying. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, each and every one of us in our own unique way. And I'm painfully aware of of my own very special personal brand of sin that inhabits my heart, just as a personal brand of sin inhabits each of your hearts, Right? But as a society, we live in a time of great confusion and darkness. And that confusion and darkness is brought on by the devil's oldest lie. We take God's holy name in vain. What does that mean? When Moses met God on the mountain, he said, Who should I tell them sent me? And what did God say? He said, I am who I am. That is his holy covenant name. I am who I am. And as people, we have all become confused, and we put ourselves in the wrong place, and we take on God's name, and we self-identify ourselves. We say, I am who I am. I am self-made. I will do it my way, like the Frank Sinatra song, right? 
Think about that. I did it my way. Is that something to be proud of? We all, like sheep, have gone astray, right? Some of us further afield than others, to be certain, right? But I want to caution you all, right? We should not take on God's identity. We are created things, not the creator. And we should be very, very careful about looking down our nose at others who are confused in a different way than we are, right? This message is for us, not for others, okay? We need to speak the truth in love to others because we are all led astray and we are all confused about our identity. We are not what we say we are. We are made in the image of God. We are his creations, okay? So I think that the Westminster Catechism I think it's like questions 18 through 20, maybe somewhere around there, really summarizes the estate that we fall into and what happens. So what is the misery of the estate wherein to man fell? All mankind by the fall lost communion with God, are under his wrath and curse, and so made liable to all the miseries of this life, to death itself and the pain of hell forever. The next question that comes naturally out of that, well, did God leave all mankind to perish? In this estate of sin and misery? No. God, having out of his mere good pleasure from all eternity, elected some to everlasting life by a redeemer. Not on our own power, but by a redeemer. And then, of course, the next question is, well, who is the redeemer of God's elect? Who is it? The only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who, being the eternal Son of God, became man, and so was, and continues to be. God and man in two distinct natures, in one person forevermore. So the stage is set, and we have both the benefits of history, not only the Old Testament, but the New Testament, and the redeeming power of Christ. We also have the benefit of prophecy. So we know the end. We know what's going to happen in the end. Let's turn to Revelation 21, and we'll look at verses 1 through 8, and then we'll skip down to 22, 1 through 5. So Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared. The sea was also gone, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, Write this down, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, It is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But cowards, unbelievers, the corrupt, murderers, the immoral, those who practice witchcraft, idol worshipers, and all liars, their fate is in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. We'll continue on in chapter 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me a river with the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It flowed down the center of the main street. On each side of the river grew a tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, with a fresh crop each month. The leaves were used for medicines to heal the nations. 
No longer will it be a curse upon anything, for the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name will be written on their foreheads, and there will be no night there, no need for lamps or sun, for the Lord God will shine on them, and they will reign forever and ever. Then the angel said to me, everything you heard and have seen is trustworthy and true. The Lord God who inspires his prophets has sent his angel to tell his servants what will happen soon. We are God's servants, and he sent his angel to John And John recorded this, and this has been preserved and passed down by many godly men and godly women throughout all of the last 2,000 years so that we may hear that this will happen soon. We've been warned for 2,000 years at least that this is coming soon. Okay? So, the new creation, right? There's an original creation which was made perfect in harmony and communion and unity with God. And we fell off that razor's edge, and we decided we want our own way. We want to be who we say we are. I am who I am, instead of relying on God. And we have constantly fallen back and forth, back and forth between our own plans and inaction. And we fail to rely on God to guide our actions as we go forward. But there is a new creation, and the good news is that it started on Easter 2,000 years ago, when Jesus was raised from the dead. And the new creation began on that day in each of our hearts. It's already underway. Many of you have already been raised to life in Christ. So what is this new life? We are new creations. Let's look at Romans 12, 2. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way that you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. We can't do this on our own. But God will teach us and he will help us to learn what his will is for us. That's what this life is. We're given a short time because if God gave, imagine the most wicked people in, the, in history, right? Stalin with an infinite life. How much power could he accrue to himself? How much damage could he do to God's creation, to God's people, right? So God limits it. He says, I will not let man live forever. This is what happened way back before the flood, right? We're wicked and we turn from him, so I'm not going to give them forever. He gives us this short time so that we may learn God's will for us, so that we can become transformed through his spirit into this new creation. Okay, we've been raised to new life in Christ, raised to spiritual life. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person, The old life is gone and a new life has begun. So what should we do with this? We should take hold of this new life. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. Ask and you shall receive. All right, so we're in the middle of the story, right? Um, My daughter and I like to watch Star Wars together. And so as we're watching it, you know, about midway through the movie, she'll start to get really scared. But I know the end of the movie. And so she's like, what's going to happen? Are they going to die? And I say, well, they're the main character. They're not going to die. I know the ending, right? And we all know the ending. But we're stuck in the middle of the movie. And sometimes we, we lose this perspective of what's coming, this new creation, this final creation. And so in the process, we become afraid and timid. But what do we do in the meantime? We still have a mission to do. 
we still have a mission to fill the earth and subdue it and to reign with Christ on this earth. And we do it imperfectly during this life, but it teaches us to be ready to do that in the next life through the transformational power of Christ in our lives and in our hearts and in our minds. And so Jesus teaches us, I'm going to give you three metaphors, right? Three different handles to hold this bucket with that I'm, that I'm giving you to carry out today. And Jesus teaches us with these. So the first metaphor is that we are salt. The second is that we're light. And the third that is we are ambassadors of Christ. So let's talk about salt. Jesus teaches us, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, what good is it? It's good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. What does it mean to be salty? We don't, like, if someone's like, oh, they're salty, we probably are, don't think that's a good thing. Um, salt actually was one of the most valuable commodities in the world at the time of Jesus. In, in fact, it was more valuable than gold in certain places and at certain times. So he's not talking about the bottle of Morton's that you have on the shelf, right? He's talking about something that really matters. And salt does three things. It protects, it preserves, and permeates. You guys like that? <laughs> it protects, it preserves, and permeates. So what does salt protect from? It protects from corruption. If you salt meat, it keeps it from going rotten, right? Okay, so we are meant to protect the world, to protect our homes, to protect our families, to protect our neighbors and our communities from the rottenness of Satan's lies, from Satan's little tricks. You are who you say you are. It's not true. We need to protect from that, right? We also preserve things. When Abraham was meeting with God and God was going down to see the wickedness in Sodom and Gomorrah, he negotiated very hard with God, right? And he gets down to 10 righteous people. If there are only 10 righteous people in Sodom, will you still destroy it? And God says, no, I won't. And I think the reason for that is is because God knows that only 10 righteous people can preserve enough of a society to turn it back to him. Imagine what you, being salty, can do. Just you, all by yourself. You can make an impact. The last thing is that salt permeates. As Christians, we're called to participate in every part of human endeavor. There are some notable exceptions, but think about this. The arts, the sciences, education, healthcare, construction, business. We are called to permeate every aspect of society so that we can protect and preserve. And the other duty that we have as we permeate is to be light. So Jesus says, no one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. No, they put it on a stand so that it provides light to the whole house. So we're called not only to protect, preserve, and permeate, but to light the world around us. What does light do? It helps people to see clearly. It removes confusion. Uh, Every once in a while, I'll go into the bedroom, and Danielle will be sleeping, and I'm like, kind of, where is everything? What's happening here, right? But if there's light, I can see clearly where I am and what I'm doing. Light attracts us. There's something about sitting around a campfire right, and the light that comes from that that attracts our eye and attracts us. So light is attractive. And light guides us and focuses us on things that we need to pay attention to. So we're called to be a light. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Hide it under a bushel? No! I'm going to let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. We're called to be salt and light. And the final thing that I'll leave you with today, the final handle for this bucket, right? Because these are all the same idea, but just given in different ways. Whichever one resonates with you, just grab onto that one and let go of the others, okay? But we're called to be ambassadors. In 2 Corinthians 5.20, Paul tells the Corinthians, so we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. 
We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. What do ambassadors do? They have diplomatic immunity for one, but that doesn't mean they can go around breaking all the laws of their host country. Ambassadors are respectful of the culture that they're in while not becoming part of the culture that they're in. They never forget where their true home is, but they never forget that they are a representative of who sent them. Ambassadors don't bang people over the head with the truth, but they gently encourage and teach those who are confused or who are lost. Patiently, because you never know, God might change their heart and mind and transfer them as well into his kingdom. We're called to be winsome ambassadors of Christ. We don't bang people over the head with the truth. We offer it to them. We plead with them. Come back to God. Because we realize how short this life is and how fleeting it is. So church, I, I had this experience. Last year at work, I thought I was going to get a new assignment and I was going to leave behind uh, many of the friends and relationships that I had. And I was deeply convicted because I realized that I had never witnessed to my friends. I had not been... I may have preserved and protected in certain ways, but I didn't shine the light brightly for it as I could, and I did not make a clear statement in pleading for them to come back to God. And I said, wow, God, I wasted this time. Yesterday, Danielle and I drove up into the mountains to a funeral, and the, the death had been unexpected and sudden, and the family was left reeling and in shock. And it's a reminder to us that the time is short. We never know. God could be waiting for you to minister to one other friend. Only the Father knows the time, but we should be ready, and we should make the most of every opportunity. Church, this is like, as all of my opportunities to preach or teach, I'm teaching to myself here, and I hope that you benefit in some way from what I've learned or gleaned as I've gone through this, but here's the challenge I would issue to you today. Here's what I'll, the last thing I'll leave you with is this. Your friend's house is on fire. Your neighbor's house is on fire. The people you love, their house is on fire and they are sleeping. Wake them up. How will they know if no one tells them? Maybe you're the one that God sent to tell them. Maybe you're just one in a long series of touch points. Maybe someone else sowed and you're watering or reaping. But tell them. Wake them up. The time is short. Life is short. Do not let the opportunities for good works which God has placed right in front of you pass you by because of your inaction. And don't miss what God has for you because you want to make your own plans. Fix your eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. Mark out a straight path before you. Make it level so those who are weak or lame do not trip and fall and they may become strong. Throw off the sin that entangles you, which so easily hinders us, and run with endurance the race that he has marked out before you. The last challenge I have for you is this. Sorry, that's a bunch probably, I guess. Invite your friends to church. Just do it. You don't have to know what to say. Say, come and see. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Not for us. Not because we're the best church. Not because we're the right church. Not because we're a perfect church. But because we are a church that is part of the church. 
We gather together to worship the one who saves us, the one who delivers us from this torment and misery, from this death and decay. And as I look out at this church, I'll share this with you. Um, We met on May 4th as a church in this back room here on the National Day of Prayer. And we sincerely prayed that God would make us a holy people, that he would send down his Holy Spirit to inhabit our hearts, and that we would be a light shining in the darkness to our family, to our neighborhoods, to our communities, and to the city around us. Dare we ask for revival? May we be so bold? Invite your friends to church because we're part of the church which stretches out throughout all eternity, which is the body of Christ. We are the hands and feet of Christ. You don't have to know what to do. It's not the messenger. It's the message. The message is what matters, not you. I'll invite the, uh, the worship team up to help us close our time in worship as I pray. Uh, Go ahead and bow your heads and let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for inviting us on this mission of creation with you. Lord, may each of our hearts and our eyes see clearly the hidden faults in us. Keep us from deliberate sins so that we may be good servants of you. Lord, as we struggle and fight for the truth and for the good news, give us a spirit of power and of courage, not of timidity and fear. Help us to love those around us and to gently correct and instruct them. Help us to be a people who wholeheartedly follow you. Help us to be salt and light and winsome ambassadors. In your mighty and holy name we pray. Amen. You are listening to the official podcast of The Mission Redlands. For more information, visit us at themissionredlands.com.